What makes a ghost? According to legend and lore, a ghost is created in one of three ways. When a person dies unexpectedly or violently. When they die with something important left unfinished or unsaid. Or when a suicide changes their mind in the moment between life and death. Yes, the classic ghost is the product of sudden death, regret, despair, and murder. There are no ghosts created from happiness. Are there? My name is Diane Ladley, named by other storytellers as America's Ghost Storyteller. And this is Hysteria, my monthly podcast series of history's eeriest true ghost stories. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Hysteria on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast player you're using, where you can also rate and review this episode. A four or five star rating and good review from you really helps boost Hysteria up in the rankings. Hysteria is free, but if you'd like to offer some much appreciated support in this holiday season of giving, click the links I've included in the episode notes to give either a monthly sponsorship on Patreon.com or a one-time donation on PayPal. For this is the holiday episode of Hysteria. It's history that catches the spirit of Christmas. No one can blame Annie Kehoe for not immediately seeing that her twin five-year-old boys were missing that day. After all, Annie and William Kehoe were blessed with ten children, filling their gorgeous Victorian Queen Anne-style mansion at 123 Habersham Street near downtown Savannah, Georgia, with joyful noise and constant bustling activity. William Kehoe was ten years old when his poor but loving family immigrated from Ireland to Savannah. He began as an apprentice to an iron molder, but worked his way up the ladder of success to start his own iron foundry. He married the love of his life, Annie, and together they became one of Savannah's richest, most prominent families. In 1892, they built their dream home, a magnificent brick mansion on lovely Columbia Square, showcasing the detailed artistry of his company's product on the trim moldings and Corinthian columns, all exquisitely cast in molded iron. William spared no expense at a cost of a stunning, for the times, $25,000 to build. So when the twins did not appear at the dinner table that evening, Annie was quite put out. As she searched the house for them, her irritation turned to worry, then anxiety, and finally cold fear when she could find no trace of her young boys. No one, not the family, servants, or neighbors, could recall seeing the twins. The police were sent for, and the house and surrounding area were combed inch by inch with no success. No kidnapper's note was ever received. It was as if the boys had simply vanished from within the walls. For the following week, the Kehoe household was in frantic despair. On the seventh day, a maid noticed an unpleasant smell emanating from one of the more unused parlor rooms. A smell like rotting meat. It distinctly grew worse near the fireplace, but she couldn't find the source. She figured a rat had died inside the halls, so she hurried to tell the lady of the house. When Annie entered the room, she immediately noticed the smell and felt an inexplicable fear grip her heart. She haltingly moved to the fireplace and raised her candle to peer up, far up the chimney. And there, to her ultimate horror, she could just make out the bodies of her twin boys tightly wedged inside, black with soot. The boys had climbed up there, got stuck, and suffocated to death. 
Why did they climb up the chimney? No one knows. It's most often put down that the boys thought it was a neat new hiding spot. Or maybe they planned a prank to scare the maid by jumping down from the chimney like demonic little imps. No one really knows, but my theory is that they were pretending to be chimney sweeps. Starting in the late 1700s on through the Victorian age, all around the industrialized world, little boys, and sometimes girls, as young as six years old, were apprenticed to master chimney sweeps. Most often they were orphans. Other times they were sold to the sweep master by poverty-stricken parents. In America, there are almost universally African-American children, both enslaved and freed. These little boys, the smaller the better, were forced to climb up inside chimneys as small as nine by nine inches. First, they'd remove their shoes and most, if not all, of their clothes, except for a distinctive flat cap, which offered flimsy protection. Then, using their back, elbows, feet, and knees in a trained technique, the boy would shimmy up the chimney like a caterpillar, holding a large brush over his head to dislodge loose soot, and a scraper to remove solid, tough, burning lumps of creosote. Soot would rain down over and around him, getting into his eyes and lungs, infecting the open scrapes and burns he'd get from the rough, searing hot brick on his bare skin. He would climb all the way from the cellar to the roof, sometimes three, four stories. When he reached the top, he'd slide all the way back down, often with predictable results. Proper form, using elbows, feet, knees, and their back, meant life or death to these tormented children. If a boy slipped, or his legs gave way for even a moment, gravity would cause his rear end to drop first, jamming his mouth and nose against his knees in a fetal position. Struggling in that horribly small space with clouds of soot raining down around him would cause suffocation in less than two minutes of utter terror. That's why the master sweep would send a second boy up to either pull his legs down or, often, use needles to prick his feet or rear end to get him to move. If no other boy was available, the sweep would light a small fire below. The theory was that the pain would be encouragement enough for the six-year-old boy to wiggle out of his predicament. If he was well and truly stuck, masons would have to be called to remove bricks from the side of the chimney to free the boy, dead or alive. These little boys never saw a penny for this incredibly dangerous, terrifying work. The master sweep was only required to feed them, put a roof over their head, buy them one suit of clothes, send them to church on Sundays, and bathe them once a week, usually in nearby rivers, which were open sewers. They had one day off a year, on May Day. That was it. If a child survived this brutal childhood into their teens, they often developed deformed arms, legs, and spine, serious lung issues, as well as cancer of the scrotum. Of these last two, it was a toss-up as to which would kill them first. Eventually, England passed strictly enforced laws putting an end to using chimney boys, though the general public fought against those laws. People believed that chimney boys did a better, more thorough job of cleaning than mechanical methods, so their homes would be at risk if not properly cleaned by a boy. In America, chimney boys were the norm for quite some time after England outlawed it. On their May Day holiday, chimney sweeps would join parades in the streets, dancing with the tool of their trade, the distinctive brush. Perhaps that's why chimney sweeps became romanticized shortly after the child labor was outlawed. 
In novels and stories of the time, these miserable, red-eyed, hacking, filthy, cancer-riddled men suddenly became gallant, dancing heroes filled with joy and good humor. It became great good luck for a bride to see a chimney sweep on her wedding day. This belief was so widespread that sweeps would be paid to stand in the street outside a bride's house. Touching a sweep's coat button, shaking their hands, or blowing them a kiss would bring you luck as well. Over the decades, chimney sweeps have been celebrated in books, stage musicals, and movies, the most famous being Bert in the Mary Poppins series, written by Pamela Lyndon Travers from 1934 to 1996 and made into the beloved Walt Disney film of the same name. Fun fact, in the books, Bert is not a chimney sweep. Instead, he sells matches and creates street art with chalk on the sidewalk. The sweep is another character altogether. It's only in the movie where the two characters are merged into one, performed by the delightfully unforgettable Dick Van Dyke. So perhaps, back in the big, beautiful Kehoe Mansion in turn-of-the-century Savannah, Georgia, those five-year-old twin boys had seen other little boys, just like them, scampering up the chimneys and didn't realize the horrors of the job. It probably looked like a lot of fun to them. So one of the Kehoe boys crawled up the narrow chimney, but didn't know the proper technique of elbows, knees, feet, and back, and inevitably slipped, jamming his knees to his chin, getting well and truly stuck, and starting to suffocate. His brother climbed up to try to pull him down, but he too slipped and got stuck. Their struggles loosened cascades of thick black soot that filled their lungs with every tiny breath they could catch, the sound of their coughs muffled by their squeezed position in the heavy bricks. And in less than two minutes, the twin five-year-old boys suffocated to death. So tightly were they wedged up inside the nine-by-nine-inch shaft that even in death their bodies didn't fall, and so covered with black soot that they couldn't easily be spotted from below. It was only due to the stench of their decomposing flesh that they were ever found. Inconsolable in their grief, the Kehos had all the fireplaces blocked up and adorned them with beautiful angels in memory of their lost children. A tragic tale indeed, except it might be only that, a tale. There's no documented evidence to prove the tragedy at the Kehoe Mansion ever happened. That doesn't mean it didn't. Written records were notoriously sketchy back then, especially with the monumentally high death rates for young children at the turn of the century. But it certainly did happen to uncounted numbers of doomed chimney sweep boys across America and Europe. As to why the Kehoes blocked up their fireplaces, a more plausible explanation could be that they brought central heating into the mansion, and drafty chimneys meant high heating bills. So, no evidence of tragic deaths and a perfectly logical explanation for blocked chimneys, that's usually more than enough to debunk any ghost story. And yet, the Kehoe house is documented as one of the most paranormally active homes in Savannah, which is one of the most haunted cities in America, so that's saying something. But why? How did these ghosts at the Kehoe house come about? After the mansion passed from the Kehoe family, it became a funeral home for most of the 20th century. Nothing starts rumors of a haunted house more than a funeral home. Then in 1980, famed New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath bought the mansion for $80,000. For a time, he considered turning it into a nightclub and disco, which scared the neighbors on Columbia Square even more than the ghosts. 
but instead he restored the mansion to its former glory and sold it nine years later for $530,000, a house flipper's dream. Today, the Kehoe House is one of the top-rated bed and breakfasts in Savannah, evoking all the romance of a bygone age with the luxuries of today. There have been an overwhelming number of inexplicable, eerie experiences reported over the decades at the Kehoe House. <laughs> Guests and staff frequently hear ghostly children playing games on the second and third floors, hear their laughing voices and little running feet as they scamper up and down the hall and stairs. Two little boy ghosts are particularly noisy and rambunctious. But the Kehoe House is an adults-only bed-and-breakfast honeymoon hideaway. There are no children in the entire house. How also to explain the gentle, loving presence of Annie Kehoe, who has been seen and felt in rooms 201 and 203, her former bedroom and private sitting room, accompanied by the fragrance of her favorite rose perfume. One woman guest reported that she had been sleeping next to her husband in room 201 when she slowly woke up to the sensation of tiny hands gently stroking her cheek and hair. She turned her head to come face to face, eye to eye, with a very young boy who smiled brightly at her and vanished. <laughs> Maybe that's how Annie's children used to wake up their mother in the past as she slept in what is now room 201 except without the scary vanishing into thin air. Annie still makes her motherly rounds around bedtime on the third floor, where her children once slept. This ghost once gave a former owner a sweet kiss on the cheek as he lay awake in a third-floor bedroom, as if she had mistaken him for one of her own sleepy little boys. And why does William Kehoe still dwell here? Late at night, a light is often seen in the locked, unused room on the top floor cupola where William had his private study, where he would go to savor a bit of quiet time away from his noisy, bustling brood of children, both in life and afterlife. One concierge at the inn had an unusual encounter with William Kehoe's spirit one night. While sitting at the check-in desk, she heard the front doorbell ring. Looking through the exquisite cut glass door, she saw no one there, so she ignored the bell. The bell rang again, but still she saw no one. Annoyingly, it rang a third time, and again she ignored it, convinced it was some kids, perhaps the ghostly twins, playing a prank. Suddenly, to her shock, the door unlocked all by itself and swung wide open. And not just the front door. At that same moment, all the outside doors to the house, including all the balcony doors on the upper floors, were unlocked and opened by unseen hands. Maybe William Kehoe's ghost had forgotten his key that day and rang the bell to be let in. Then when no one answered the door, he made his displeasure known in no uncertain terms. The Kehoe House in Savannah, Georgia is unlike any other haunted house in America. With the exception of the missing boys, a story which may or may not be true, it has no history of violent tragedy, suicide, or despair. 
Instead, it breaks the tradition of how ghosts are said to be made. It's a wonderful haven of happiness for a large, devoted family who lived and loved here over a century ago. Unlike nearly every other ghost, these were created from everlasting joy, contentment, and laughter. Abiding in their own little piece of heaven on Earth, the Kehoe House is indeed the happiest haunted house in America. Stay tuned after the credits for a special holiday extra about the English tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas. History is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's Ghost Storyteller. Like my podcast? Then please click the subscribe button to automatically get new free episodes once a month. Won't you also take a sec to give Hysteria a five-star rating and maybe write a quick review? These things you could do are all important in getting Hysteria featured in Apple Podcasts and Google Play. That's my goal for the new year. Thank you for these little things you could do to help me achieve it. Want to help more? Excellent! You could help me create more episodes of Hysteria for as little as $1 a month as my artistic sponsor on Patreon.com or as a one-time donor on PayPal starting at just $2. It's easy and secure. I've included links in the notes for this episode. Or just go to hysteria.com and click the Send Diane a Tip link. I gratefully welcome and appreciate every single dollar. And now, as promised, here's something extra I want to share with you this holiday season. In England, Halloween is a time for witches, vampires, werewolves, and devils, but not ghosts. Instead, Brits believe that ghosts and ghost stories are far more appropriate for the Christmas holidays than at Halloween. Why? The answer can be found in the tradition of Yuletide ghost stories, with the majority of them written and published by Charles Dickens. Such stories as A Christmas Carol and The Chimes. Reading these classic Victorian tales inspire feelings of light, joy, warmth, hope, and good cheer, but Dickens starkly contrasts them with vivid images of darkness, death, isolation, and hopelessness. Dickens knew that Christmas, more than any other time of year, is a time of mystery, miracles, and the supernatural, and that for many there is no lonelier time in all the year than at Christmas. His tales of spectral visitations remind us that we are each haunted by our personal ghosts of depression, sorrow, and dread. Ghosts whose tragic stories express within us the unspoken, heartfelt wish to forgive and be forgiven, to remember and be remembered by the ones we love. Christmas ghost stories assure us of the saving grace given to those who make those humble wishes come true. I hope that you and your family will revive the poignant and powerful Victorian England tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve night and allow their icy touch to bring a warm holiday glow into all your hearts. Thank you, dear podcast listener, for tuning in to Hysteria. It's history that catches the spirit of Christmas.